I'm Reverend Campbell. Hail Satan. I believe I was first involved with Satanic Player Society when I approached the ringmaster uh, to come on to my show, uh, Speak of the Devil. I think my favorite episode to date has been uh, Lufer Mar and uh, the Onyx Forest, and it's simply because I had uh, narrated the story Lufer Mar uh, and the Otherworld itself, so it was a lot of fun. Storytelling will always be relevant in our world. We as human beings have continued to uh, spread myths and tales through first-hand storytelling. And as our culture progressed through society and technology advanced, we changed to movies and video games, the printed press, uh, newspapers, all in a ultimate means of sharing our stories in in convincing the world that uh, we have a history, that we have relevance in the chaos of the universe. Uh, storytelling will never not be relevant to not only our species, but within our cultural zeitgeist, the way that we contemplate and place ourselves in our world. Um, what interests me most about the horror genre is possibility, the danger, the fear, the thought that there are monsters either in our world or within a pocket dimension of our world that has access to us, that can reach down to our primal fears and excite us and terrify us and destroy us or elevate us to a, a greater understanding. Uh, horror itself awakens the imagination, the possibilities, because to be all fair and honest, we're fragile creatures. And the idea that there's something outside of our control that would be preying on us, it, it takes us back to this primordial time when we were more connected to that circle of life, uh, that circle of food, of hunt and being hunted, that fight or flight notion that is dormant within our lizard brains, within our human DNA. Uh, that, I think, ultimately is what I connect with. You know, as a child, I think Nightmare on Elm Street frightened me the most, like absolutely the most. Um, as far as movies go, Freddy Krueger was a terrifying visage. The idea that you were vulnerable to him in your most vulnerable time when you're sleeping, and there is literally nothing that you can do because you have to sleep as a human being. Your brain must shut down and try to process what you experienced uh, during your waking hours. Knowing that we are so vulnerable in that time, a monster like Freddy... It's just too terrifying for the five-year-old Adam inside of me. My first taste of horror was A Nightmare on Elm Street. But even going back 
before that, you know, shows like Frankenstein really brought out this sort of primal fright within me as a, a young child. We used to watch a lot of werewolf movies as a kid. There was actually a werewolf TV show that obsessed me within my mind. Um, the idea that we as human beings could actually be the monsters was something that titillated and terrified. And it sort of led me down the path that I am today. But even more than those uh, uh, werewolf movies or A Nightmare on Elm Street was Clive Barker's A Hellbound Heart. This novel, it, it sort of pulled the veil back from my eyes. It let me know that yes, there are creatures out there. There are terrors and monsters that will tear your soul apart. But it's all for experience. Like the idea of pleasure and pain being tied up together, I had never conceived of it before I read this uh, novella. And it excited me. And then the movie Hellraiser came out and I, um, well, to be fair, it came out before <laughs> I read the book, but I didn't see it before I read the book. Um, so when I, I saw the movie, it was just, uh, I mean, it wasn't as, as good as the book because it, you know, you don't always have the same visualizations as other people when you read a book, but I absolutely adored it. And it's still that character of Frank in his um, absolute quest to find the ultimate pleasure as a human being, well, this is something that Satanists must have within them. That, that drive of carnal instinct, that desire for ultimate experience in life, simply because this is the only one we have. So if I can, I'd like to read a brief uh, bit out of uh, Clive Barker's A Hellbound Heart, because this, this is truly what sums up horror for me. At some point in his labors, the bell had begun to rung, a steady, somber tolling. He had not heard, at least not consciously. But when the puzzle was almost finished, the mirrored innards of the box unknotted. He became aware that his stomach churned so violently at the sound of the bell, it might have been ringing half a lifetime. He looked up from his work. For a few moments, he supposed the noise to be coming from somewhere in the street outside, but he rapidly dismissed the notion. It had been almost midnight before he'd begun to work at the bird maker's box. Several hours had gone by, hours he would not have remembered passing but for the evidence of his watch since then. There was no church in the city, however, desperate for adherence, there would ring a summoning bell at such an hour. No. The sound was coming from somewhere much more distant, through the very door as yet invisible, that Lamarcon's miraculous box had been constructed to open. Everything that Kircher had sold him the box, had promised of it, was true. He was on the threshold of a new world, a province infinitely far from the room in which he sat, infinitely far, yet now, suddenly, near. The thought had made his breath quick. He had anticipated this moment so keenly, planned with every wit he possessed this rending of the veil. In moments, they would be here, the ones Kirshner had called the Cenobites, theologians of the Order of the Gash, summoned from their experiments in the higher reaches of pleasure to bring their ageless heads into a world of rain and failure. 
He had worked ceaselessly in the preceding week to prepare the room for them. The bare boards had been meticulously scrubbed and strewn with petals. Upon the west wall, he had set a kind of altar to them, decorated with the kind of placatory offerings Kirshner had assured him would nurture their good offices. Bones, bonbons, needles. A jug of his urine, the product of seven days' collection, stood on the left of the altar, should they require some spontaneous gesture of self-defilement. On the right, a plate of dove's heads, which Kirshner had also advised him to have on hand. He had left no part of the invocation ritual unobserved, no cardinal eager for the fisherman's shoes, could have been more diligent. But now, as the sound of the bell became louder, drowning out the music box, he was afraid. Too late, he murmured to himself, hoping to quell his rising fear. Lemarchand's device was undone. The final trick had been turned. There was no time left for prevarication or regret. Besides, hadn't he risked both life and sanity to make this unveiling possible? The doorway was even now opening to pleasures no more than a handful of humans had ever known existed, much less tasted. Pleasures which would redefine the parameters of sensation, which would release him from the dull round of desire, seduction and disappointment that had dogged him from late adolescence. He would be transformed by that knowledge, wouldn't he? No man could experience the profundity of such feeling and remain unchanged. The bare bulb in the middle of the room dimmed and brightened, brightened and dimmed again. It had taken the rhythm of the bell, burning its hottest on each chime. In the troughs between the chimes, the darkness in the room became utter. It was as if the world he had occupied for twenty-nine years had ceased to exist. Then the bell would sound again, and the bulb burned so strongly it might never have faltered, and for a few precious seconds he was standing in a familiar place with a door that led out and down and into the street, and a window through which he had but the will or strength to tear the blinds back. He might glimpse a rumor of the morning. With each peal, the bulb's light was becoming more revelatory. By it, he saw the east wall flayed saw the brick momentarily lose solidity and blow away, saw in the same instant the place beyond the room from which the bell's din was issuing. A world of birds, was it? Vast black birds caught in perpetual tempest? This was all the sense he could make of the province from which even now the Hierophants were coming. That it was in confusion and full of brittle, broken things that rose and fell and filled the dark air with their fright. And then the wall was solid again and the bell fell silent. The bulb flickered out. This time, it was without a hope of rekindling. He stood in the darkness and said nothing. Even if he could remember the words of welcome he prepared, his tongue would not have spoken them. It would just playing dead in his mouth. And then, light. It came from them, from the quartet of Cenobites, who now, with the wall sealed behind them, occupied the room. A fitful phosphorescence, like the glow of deep sea fishes, blue, cold, charmless. It struck Frank that he had never once wondered what they would look like. His imagination, though fertile when it came to trickery and theft, was impoverished in other regards. The skill to picture these eminences was beyond him, so he had not even tried. 